am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and here in my office today with me is... Andy Bramson. And Mitchell Crum. And we're supposed to say that Sam Mulberry pushed the record button before he walked out of the <laughs> office. Yes, folks, he had a meeting. Yes. He's our faithful producer, though. He yeah, is. he, um, and he, you know, how many political scientists does it take to push a record button? And the answer apparently is more apparently than Apparently one more than we have. <laughs> <laughs> apparently it takes one historian. One historian we need a historian. At least, yep, that's right. At least more than three political scientists. Guys, what's happening in the news this week? Oh, well, things aren't looking brilliant for um, Donald Trump. Um, although it's mm, tightened up a little bit again, but the electoral college is looking really a bad. Bit. You see, you know, almost so. a lilt in your voice, like just like <laughs> a, a leprechaun's smidge. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't think significantly. I don't think enough to make a difference. But there are some polls that um, can you can look at say you know he's closer. He's still losing, mm-hmm. but he's losing by less spectacular margins. Um, so it's still kind of interesting. But yeah. he still looks like he's got a pretty big gap, and it doesn't. It's getting hard to see how he, he pulls back in. Right. Yeah. Pro- pro- I mean, the the biggest bad news for the for the Democrats this week, obviously, was the news that the uh, insurance premiums and deductibles right. and such for Obamacare are going way way up. Yeah. Uh, that and that's that's probably been one of the things that's been driving um, some of the some of the numbers back towards uh, back back towards Trump just a mm-hmm. tiny smidge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially, you know, when we uh, when we look at those numbers, part of part of this looks like, um, you know, on, on the one hand, we want to say, well, this is somewhat expected. Right. Um, you know, we knew this was coming. This is, um, you know, in some ways, this is even um, the effect of market forces, right? You right. know, the insurance right. companies have figured out this is what it costs to cover people. And so now they need to uh, raise their rates to be able to do that. But, of course, that also means that people are going to have to switch plans. People will lose plans mm-hmm. that they have. Mm-hmm. And that uh, tends to make people... Uh, uh, fairly, fairly, fairly grouchy, and especially in light of uh, <laughs> uh, both, both, both because of the convenience, and also because, um, particularly for people who don't have subsidies, which is right. a fairly small percentage of people, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. for those mm-hmm. people, it is, it is, it does present a fairly significant hardship um, to suddenly see these rates uh, rising, rising like that. Yeah. And uh, and and not only that, of course, this also reflects, um, you know, a campaign promise that President Obama made that you could keep your doctor, you could keep your plan, all of those sure. sorts of things, and that. Um, at least for, for, for people who've been in the marketplace, has not played out. Right, right. And the other, the other thing I think that we're seeing going on, too, in terms of the, just to step back to the polling for a second, too, is I think I think we are starting to see the parties consolidate a little bit in the sense that um, these, this is, you know, we have a very polarized country. People tend to be very supportive of the, you know, the party they're, they're with, either the Republicans or Democrats. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're starting to see Republicans and Democrats come home, which yes. means we're seeing an uptick in both Trump and Hillary's numbers. Not a huge one, but a little bit. Um, that suggests to me you that, that people. What's that? You, say that again. Both Hillary and yeah, they're both Donald's getting up. Numbers, numbers are going up. Right. So I think what that's showing us is that you know people who are, are flirting with voting for Johnson or McMullen or Stein, some of those people are coming home. Not all mm-hmm. of them. Right. I mean, Trump's numbers are still you know really low in terms of approval rating among Republicans. Um, 
by comparison with other candidates in the past. But right. I think that's yeah. that's part of what's going on. And I think the kind of the news story that you know Mitch just mentioned is kind of driving that to some extent on the Republican side, where people are saying this is really bad, right? And who mm-hmm. do we have to deal with it? Well, Trump's the sort of winnable option, right? So some right. of them are coming home. He's gone from a low of seventy percent approval amongst Republicans to now back up to the high eighties of approval amongst Republicans. The numbers I saw were much lower than that. Really? So I don't. Yeah, I saw more. I thought he was had gone from like the sixties to seventies. But anyway, mm. but, but yeah, maybe the, the, the point is he's at. not taking Clinton voters. He's taking right. not at all. undecideds, mm. and he's taking perhaps third party voters, and yeah. she's taking undecideds and third party voters as well. Right. Right. So even though he's getting more support, he's not cutting into her lead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to the Affordable Care Act for a minute here. Sure. Uh, uh, one of the artifacts of our. Uh, last four years of uh, President Obama's second term, is that the House Republicans um, have passed 80-some resolutions uh, (laughs) trying Mm -hmm. to appeal um, what they call Obamacare, what many people call Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Do we think (laughs) that they will give up the ghost on this in in the next presidential administration, assuming it's Hillary Clinton? If it's it's Donald Trump, they might actually try to repeal it. But if it's Hillary Clinton, does this pattern of opposition to the Affordable Care Act continue, or do we give this up and try to begin to modifying it? Well, I, th- I think, I mean, I guess my, my two cents is that I think Hillary has to try to do something, right? I mean, the, this, this news is really bad, um, as Mitchell pointed out. Um, this, you know, this is not looking, this is looking like the Unaffordable Care Act, right? I mean, mm, it, it just, mm. it's getting worse and worse. And and the problem for the Democrats is that this is precisely what Republicans warned, is that, you know, you'd get this sort of death spiral effect where people, you know, the people who would be most likely to get into it would be the ones who um, have really bad medical conditions, which is going to drive the health care costs up. And, of course, insurance companies aren't doing this um, out of the goodness of their hearts. They're doing this right. to make money. How do they make money? They raise their premiums, right? And so it looks like we're seeing that, right, whether that's actually what's going on or not. And I'm not an expert on insurance markets, right? But that's what it looks like. And so I think Hillary's got a real problem on her hands if and when she wins, and she does seem the most likely next president. Um, so I kind of think she needs to try to deal with it. Um, so I think she does have to do something to change this, and I think the Republicans absolutely are going to be hammering on this because they see this as a an issue that is to their advantage because it looks like they were right, I mean, in some ways, right, that they mm-hmm. this was not well thought out and that there are some real problems with the law, which is what they've kind of been saying all along. So I don't, I don't see them backing down. I see well, them keeping this fight up. I, I disagree slightly with part of what you said. Um, I would argue, I would, I would disagree with the characterization that wasn't well thought out. What the product I think this was of was a series of compromises the Obama administration made back in 2000, uh, 2008, 2009 in an attempt to get mm-hmm. the bill passed. Sure. Uh, and that led to a suboptimal economic system within right. the bill itself, right. which is, I think, what got us in this place today. Sure. Now, a very liberal, uh, even socialist candidate like Bernie Sanders. Would go, it would appeal to something to, to replace it with something like universal health care, mm-hmm. which nationalize mm-hmm. the health care system and control costs by by having the government right. own it. Uh, I don't think Hillary Clinton's in that space uh, policy wise. I don't think she's called for that, and I don't. I can't imagine she her can't get it pursuing that. Uh, what could be done to fix the health care system? Are, are there options available for her, or is this sort of tweaking at the margins, uh, yeah. uh, small modifications, incrementalism? Uh, I mean, the proposals I've seen from her is talking about maybe introducing some some kind of public option in the markets mm-hmm. that are right. basically failing at this point, that only have, like, one insurance company that's still mm-hmm. in them or, or, or just a handful of plans, things mm-hmm. like that. So that would be maybe something that could be tweaked where you would just, just introduce it, um, you know, you'd maybe set a threshold, like if there aren't at least three insurance companies or something. Right, right. Um, You introduce a public option um, to try to produce the competition. That... 
you know, you ask about whether that's feasible or not. I mean, this is exactly what the Republicans said <laughs> they wanted to oppose. And if they right, still control right. the House, which they almost certainly will, um, it's it becomes difficult to see how that how that happens. Um, right. uh, just what, just uh, sorry, just just a comment, too, on, on what you said about uh, will the Republicans continue to pass resolutions against um, the Affordable Care Act? And I think the answer is probably yes, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason for that is, you know, you have to think about what most bills in Congress are there to do. Most bills in Congress are not there to actually enact substantive policy. Right. The vast right. majority of bills that Congress passes are simply there to signal something to their constituents. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the actions taken right. by Congress people are more, more or less always um, at some level in, in, in pursuit of reelection. And if you can say you voted to repeal Obamacare when you go mm-hmm. back home to your right. constituents, um, mm-hmm. then, you know, if you're if you're playing to a conservative constituency, that 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 sounds good. Right. Sort of what, what if would it sound better to go back to your constituents and say, um, I killed Obamacare by fixing it. It's no longer Obamacare. <laughs> it's something else now. Um, I think, well, uh, maybe, but the problem is, like, <laughs> yeah. the moment, the moment you start, you know, not repealing it at this point, right. okay. uh, you know, the moment, the moment you are simply trying to fix it, uh, I think, I think a lot of Republicans, especially, are very worried about getting a primary challenge. You know, yeah. even if you, even if you were, even <laughs> if you were to enact good policy yeah. and do something that would actually fix it, you know, immediately you would have a sort of a Tea Party challenger that was saying they weren't willing to actually repeal it; they compromised. Right, sure, and right. they're so, in bed with the Democratic yeah, president. Right. They, yeah, right. you know, and so and so yeah. you know and so and so really in some ways that's another way that yep. our primary system especially in these yeah. very polarized you know gerrymandered yeah. districts leads us to a place where it's very difficult to actually do good policy work right. um, because you're always in danger of getting a primary challenge and to your point Chris I mean I think absolutely I would like that's exactly what I would like to see them do is to, to do that kind of constructive approach and say okay so we have I mean we have a democratic president you know let's figure out how to make this better instead of you know, grandstanding, which is what I kind of wish we'd been doing for the last six years, honestly. But, um, but that's not the we, the way they tend to approach it for precisely the reasons Mitch says. And then, um, and the other thing I think I would add to that is just that it's even if you think, okay, I could sell this. Like, if I can really fix it, I could go back and sell it. The problem is that's really hard to do, right? Because the chances of failure are really high, right? I mean, um, the the odds are what happens is you try to fix it, you try to compromise, and you fail, right? So you end up basically, I mean, to use an analogy, like you end up like Marco Rubio mm. in 2013 with immigration, right? If you can land that and you can come up with successful immigration reform and you're the author of a landmark bill, then that becomes at least – I mean, maybe you have to change your constituency a little bit, but you can market it to somebody, right? You can say, look, I'm a significant leader. I got this done. I was one of the key movers and shakers, and America is better off. That's what McCain did with McCain-Feingold. Right. But but the problem is you have to land that, right? If you don't land it, if you try and you fail, then you're the guy who tried to compromise and couldn't get anything big done. Um, which is way worse than be, sort of just being the guy who votes to repeal 40 times. So, I mean, the reality, the unfortunate is that, you know, position taking, to quote David Mayhew's, you know, sort of famous book on Congress, uh-huh. um, it works, right? I mean, and it mm-hmm. doesn't require very much because all you have to do is say stuff and then you go back and talk about how you were, you know, very opposed to this or that are very in favor of this or that, and people don't worry so much about the, your efficacy. I mean, which is, which is why somebody like, you know, Ted Cruz could build up a big um, constituency in the Republican Party, right? Sure. Even though he's not yeah. that likable and uh, empathetic of character, right? But he was, you know, he took a lot of strong positions, and so therefore people said, well, this guy really fights hard for conservative ideals. He didn't actually sure. accomplish much. Yeah. No, very little. And, um, and, and, and he's almost nothing, really. He's <laughs> repressing the accomplishments yeah. more than he did yeah. accomplishing yeah. it. Exactly. Right. But and he did I, read I, Dr. Seuss on national television. So well, there's that too. Yeah. So. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I think one of the things just to kind of just to 
say one of the things while we're while we're on the subject <laughs> is to say you know this is this is one of the problems actually with all of the scorecards that are out there um, by various interest groups. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, basically, right. if you have a scorecard that says yes, you know, you yep. this person yep. voted you know a hundred percent of the time against uh, you know the Affordable Care Act, well, you know that that doesn't really tell you anything about whether they mm-hmm. accomplished anything substantive no. policy wise. Right, um, and so that's that's actually a very poor measure mm-hmm. of how well somebody mm-hmm. is doing in Congress and what kind of um, actual leadership that they are that they're showing. Yeah, good point. So uh, under the previous Clinton administration, the Bill Clinton <laughs> administration, uh, there was an overhyped feature of that administration uh, called triangulation. And triangulation was this idea that Clinton, being faced since 1994 with a mm-hmm. Republican Congress, essentially went past his own party and ran to the middle and courted moderate Republicans to uh, to write legislation with, knowing that he could pull the moderate Democrats along with him anyway, mm-hmm. and essentially forcing his own party to comply with an otherwise more moderate position. Right. And and this is where we got things like the crime bill, which is now much derided, but at the time right. was very popular, uh, and some other and reform to so, to well uh, the uh, to welfare systems as well. Is that within Hillary Clinton's power to do, or has Congress changed, or is she a different person than her husband was? I kind of think all of those. I mean, like for one thing, I think it, it is harder. I mean, so since since that time, we have the Hastert rule, right, which says that um, to get something done, get something even brought to the floor of the House. Which I, think, I mean, I think this is kind of a bad rule. This is you know my my opinion out there, but the rule basically says you have to have a majority of the House of the, of the Republican Party. Um, this is because the rule the Republicans made. A majority of the Republican Party members in the House have to agree to the legislation before it can be brought to the floor. So you couldn't, mm-hmm. for example, get 50 moderate Republicans on board and then get the Democrats and sort of get this passed, right? Um, you'd have to have half the Republican caucus, which means you're going to have to have some pretty conservative members, um, right. which seems like it's going to be too far to the right for where Hillary Clinton would want to go. So I'm, I'm not sure it would work. I think the House is a different animal now than it was 20 years ago. So I think that's one problem. The other thing is I think you're right. I mean, I think that Hillary Clinton is a different Uh, person than her husband, obviously. I mean, that's an obvious statement, but but I think she's got a different set of skills. I think she's wired differently. I don't, I mean, I'm I'm not sold on the idea that she's like sort of wildly more liberal than Bill Clinton, even though that that narrative is out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm actually not convinced. I think she's kind of a pragmatic um, problem solver who certainly does lean left just as he did, but not, you know, not as as wildly liberal. I think she's more conservative than Obama. But I think think she's more conservative than Obama, too. I agree with that. And I, I think that the the issue for her her is that Bill Clinton did have a very magnetic personality. So if you could get yeah. when you could get people in the room with him, he was incredibly charming. He was incredibly convincing. Even people like Newt Gingrich, who did not like him politically, found him very hard to resist in person. Right? I mean, he's just very he's a very magnetic guy. Right? And Hillary Clinton simply isn't. Um, and so she's not going to have any of that kind of sort of extra thing, extra you know, sort of personality to help her. And on top of that, she faces a much more polarized situation than her husband. Yeah, I think did. So the polarization I think it's matters thing. more than the personality. In this case, I, I do too, but but the personality could matter at the edges. I mean, I th- and I think it did help mm-hmm. Bill Clinton at the edges. Um, I, I don't think even Bill Clinton would be able to pull it off today. I, I agree Fair. because of the polarization. Well, gentlemen, can I add one more news item of the of the, of the week? Oh, I'm, sure. uh, right. uh, as your friendly neighborhood international relations uh, scholar, <laughs> I feel compelled to point out that uh, we've entered into an extremely reality show uh, relationship with the Philippines. If, yeah. <laughs> if you're paying attention all to international news, um, you may be aware that uh, the, uh, the United States has had a series of unfortunate incidents with the new Philippine president, uh, Duterte. Um, and uh, the, the Philippines is a uh, traditionally a very staunch ally of the United States and is a, a principal player in our 
attempt to militarily balance against the rise of China mm-hmm. uh, in the South China Sea, along with along with Taiwan, along with Japan. And uh, Duterte, who's a uh, populist, uh, we, we're getting the experience <laughs> of populist elections yep. here in the United States. But he's a he's a he's a populist who has who who came to power on promises to crack down on the drug trade in the Philippines. And boy, has he! Uh, since his election, about thirty five hundred people have been killed in extrajudicial killings. Basically, he's informed the mm-hmm. citizenry: if you shoot a drug dealer, you won't be prosecuted. And people have taken him up on it, um, and as well as as militias and police forces. Uh, the U.S. has criticized him, and, uh, and, and it criticized this <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a gross human rights violation, a violation yeah. of the rule of law and of, of, of a you know, fair trial and court mm-hmm. system and all sorts of things. And he has responded in a very, gentlemen, can I say earthy way? Um, he called, <laughs> pre- for him. He called yeah. President Obama son of a whore in, uh, in Tagalog. Um, although President Obama is in good company, he also called the head of the <laughs> EU that way, and he also called the Pope that. So. Um, Did he really? I, I missed the Pope. He part. called the Pope a son of a whore. Yeah, he's oh, a he's a combative yeah. fellow. Right, and this um, is in a country, by the way, that's predominantly Catholic. Catholic. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. So this is an interesting move. But uh, more to the more to I think what I mean other, beyond you know, political sophistry, he recently uh, acknowledged that he was breaking up with the United States. The United States is a major military ally it's of the Philippines. We sell a lot of uh, military equipment to the Philippines. Our navies are very tightly aligned. Oh, we do naval exercises with them. And he's announced that he's abandoning those those tre- uh, those treaties <laughs> and he's abandoning those relationships. And he's he's going to um, he's going to align himself with China. Now, this is not a done deal. Um the United States has formal treaties with the Philippines. He can't universally by himself walk away from those treaties. Right. He would have to get his his legislatures to act on that behalf as well. It's not clear that he can do that. Mm-hmm. But he did walk away with a meeting with the Chinese with hundreds of millions of dollars of guarantees for loans and investments. Mm-hmm. So this has paying mm-hmm. dividends for him. I'm this the, if if the Philippines moves dramatically towards China, dramatically away from the United States. If this is not just Duterte, but if this is something that happens longer term in the Philippines, this is something that will dramatically affect the U.S.'s ability to project power in the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. And he's, I mean, yeah, he's he's just an interesting character. He reminds me, I mean, like on the thing of domestic fronts. Chris does the international relations side, and I th- always think of the sort of comparative politics angle, the internal governance. Sure. And, you know, he reminds me a, a bit of some of the um, Latin American dictators of the you know sort of earlier or the mid sort of late the mid late twentieth century. Um, Something especially of like Pinochet's regime in Chile, sure. which was you know it took over a country that had been sort of flailing. Um, it was very effective at restoring sort of economic stability and political order, right? But at um, sort of tremendous tremendous um, costs in terms of human rights, right? In terms of um, sort of abusing the population, so. Um, you wonder if sort of you're going to get that same kind of thing there, and and then you get these sort of you know these interesting shifts in international alliances by guys who just seem to be you know, like, well, you ticked me off, so I'm going to go in a different direction, even though you know China's and Philippines have not traditionally been very close. So. No, so. and in fact, have uh, the the way he signaled this most directly was that that uh, China and the Philippines dispute certain islands right in right. Uh, um, in the South China Sea and who controls them and who owns them. And he announced that he would no longer be contesting any Chinese claims, which basically puts Chinese territorial waters almost on his shoreline. <laughs> um, so that's that's a if he means that, and if, if the Philippines observes that, that's right. a pretty significant um, concession to the Chinese. Yeah. Wow. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, indeed. All right, gentlemen. Um, I, we have a couple of things to talk about here, um, but one of the things we, we we've been talking so much about the presidential election, right. so much about um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton that we just we needed a palate cleanser, 
And so we just <laughs> yeah. decided that we wanted to look a little bit at some of the down ballot races. And when we say down ballot, we mean basically anything below president up into and including, you know, the neighborhood animal cruelty center. Um, or the, the, the Parks and Rec board um, right, right. to Leslie Nope's uh, uh, great derision. Gentlemen, what's going to happen in the House and the Senate? Uh, well, when it comes to the House, uh, the, the the outcome there is much more uh, – is, fa- is fairly certain. The Republicans mm-hmm. will almost certainly control it. Um, the, the Democrats may pick up a couple of seats, um, a few seats here and there, mm-hmm. but, um, but this is not uh, – for the most part um, – uh, there, there are basically only about. Usually, there are somewhere in the vicinity of about fifty seats that are uh, genuinely contested, and that should mm-hmm. continue to be the case in this election here. So, um, when you're talking about the Republican uh, majority, it's really not, um, not, not, not in any real danger of being of being lost. I mean, basically, the, Demo- the Democrats would have to pick up thirty seats, right? I mean, is I think the number. Um, the Republicans have a historically large majority. They haven't had a majority this big since before the Great Depression, right? I mean, so this was, the 2014 victory was huge. And that just makes it very daunting, I think, for the Democrats to pick up that many seats. Um, I don't think they have strong enough candidates in some of the key districts to really take advantage. Uh, and they're running against the Republicans in you know in the districts that might be more favorable in terms of sort of who lives in the district. Um, there's some very strong Republicans. So, for example, in Minnesota, I mean, like, you know, mm-hmm. you could imagine in Eric Paulson's district, you know, you could imagine Democrats being elected. But Eric Paulson's pretty good at what he does. He's a pretty, you know, moderate Republican on some issues that matter for his district. And, you know, I would expect him to survive and survive. Oh, he has, he has a big lead over to right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that's the kind of district where, you know, you need you, you need to play if you're the Democrats. Right. You need to be able to have a real chance of winning that if you're going to overturn 30 seats. Yeah. And I just I think they're going to gain. I absolutely think they'll gain seats. I think they'll probably gain, you know, in the between 10 and 20. But I don't think probably closer to you know 15. But uh, but I don't think they're going to gain you know anywhere close to the 30 they need. So I think I think the Republicans get a reduced majority. I mean, that seems safe since they're <laughs> kind of maxed right. out at the moment. Mm-hmm. But it's I, I don't think it comes anywhere close to sort of losing the majority. Uh, I'd say they yeah. probably end up with at least a 10 seat cushion, if not more. OK. Yep. How much do Senate and House elections track with the presidency? Uh, we have Clinton with a pretty commanding lead, at least as we think. She'll probably, mm-hmm. uh, if the election were held today and the polls are correct, those are both two things that aren't necessarily true. Right. Um, but if those things happen, she might win by six or seven points. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big win in a presidential election. Uh, why isn't that paying bigger dividends in these districts? Do people not vote single party? Are they mm-hmm. not voting? Uh, is the, are the president's coattails short? Um, <laughs> yeah. they, they, they can't pull that many members of Congress with them. What's well, happening? I think it's I mean, some of both those. I mean, I guess at the House level, what's important to know is sort of the, the districts have been drawn in a way that do favor the Republicans, right? So in the last redistricting, we have our you know, we count our population through the census every 10 years. So the last time that happened in 2010, and we redrew the boundaries to sort of make sure that the House districts were, um, you know, roughly even in terms of sort of the population in each district, the Republicans largely controlled that process around the country. Not mm-hmm. everywhere, but they controlled a large majority of the state legislatures and that made these, these decisions. And so the decisions were made to favor them, right, to sort of optimize their chances. So that means that even if, you know, Democrats could absolutely and might well do so, I mean, they, they could absolutely win more votes in the House races and still win fewer seats, right? Because it's about, you know, it's like if they're getting a bunch of 80-20 victories in sort of really Democratic districts and Republicans are pulling off a lot of 55, 
you know, 60% victories in Republican districts, right? That, mm-hmm. that me- means basically the Democrats pile up a bunch of votes that really don't do anything for them, right? So I think that's the factor that I would point to at the House level. At the Senate level, I mean, I do expect it to shift a little more. I think that Hillary is going to have some coattail effect. I think the Democrats have a much stronger field this time, obviously. Um, they're going to win a couple of Republican-held seats probably and, you know, possibly quite a number. I mean, they, I think the worst-case scenario, they probably pick up two. They probably take Illinois and Wisconsin. And best-case scenario, they could pick up six or seven, right? Yeah. Um, I think five is reasonable. Th- I, I think five is pretty reasonable. Indiana looks still likely, although not a guarantee. Um, New Hampshire is looking pretty good for them. Pennsylvania looks very possible. Um, Missouri looks very possible. And if they so, do that, they'll so. take, they'll take control. Of the and Senate. then they would take control of the Senate, right? I think you know right now the odds are the Democrats do take control of the Senate, but it's going to. I think it's going to be close, and it, it could. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if the Republicans get a better turnout than expected, um, that could change things. If if people if swing voters say, you know what. I'm voting for Hillary Clinton because I think she's, you know, sort of more, more qualified and less abhorrent. But I'm not really happy about giving her, um, you know, sort of all this power. The, you, you could imagine some swing voters making a pragmatic choice to say, I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton and for, you know, Kelly Ayotte or Matt, Pat Toomey in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania to sort of balance her out. Right. So right. It, it's going to kind of depend on what those swing voters are thinking when they go in there. And I, you know, who knows at this point. Right. Yeah. I'd like to point something out that you just said here. One of my bugaboos of internet of American politics is this is this redistricting process. Oh yeah, um, that's a problem. And it's um, it, it happens with the census. Every, we have mm-hmm. a test census by constitutional mandate. We have a census every ten years <laughs> in the United States, and then based on that census, uh, Congress is in or I mean, sorry, Congress, but also at the state levels, uh, districts are drawn right. up. And in the in the 2010 census. Uh, a lot of those districts, as Andy said, a lot of those redistricting processes were were controlled by Republicans, and this is a partisan process. Right. And when it is to your advantage to try to draw districts in such a way that you ensure a reliable majority for your party in that district, right. but not an absolute majority. You don't necessarily need uh, a huge win. You just need a solid 60% right. um, so that you can sort of bury all the votes of your opposing party in districts that they know they can't win. Mm-hmm. And... That has created, at least because of the 2010 census, that has created a pretty durable, not enormous, but but noticeable advantage for Republicans in the House. Right. And that and that's not to say that they're you know that they are uniquely guilty in this, given the opportunities. No, likely to think the Democrats would do that or may do that in the future. Well, I mean, they, and they have done it in states that they controlled. Right. The sure. problem for them was that they just didn't control as many states and. 2010 is the, the Republicans. So, you know, the, I think the Democrats absolutely did do this in some of their states. Sure. But yeah, it just point. didn't that's give them point. as much advantage, right? I mean, so, you know, if, if the Republicans controlled two thirds of the states, right, they sort of hold the, the greater power in terms of shaping things to their advantage. All that to say, I'd love to have some sort of Aristotelian philosopher king who has no political yeah. uh, a stake <laughs> in the game and who would just happily drop the most reasonable congressional districts possible uh, based on allotments of population. But um, I have no reason to expect that there's any way we can make that happen. Yeah, Americans are pretty opposed to kings, philosophers, or otherwise. Or even nonpartisan yeah. uh, redistricting <laughs> commissions. Uh, some states yeah, have tried right. nonpartisan redistricting commissions, and they... Right. Um, They've been slow to be adopted. Uh, parties do not want to re- give up control of this of no. this option. No. All right, and, and the other thing to note about uh, what, who who had, who g- gains the advantage in those situations too are mostly the incumbents. I mean, basically, mm, sure. the parties at that point, you know, the people who get appointed to those, and the parties who uh, are involved then just basically want to protect you know their major people who are in 
who are already in office. And so mm-hmm. it becomes basically drawing the districts to protect to protect the people who are already there. Mm-hmm. We think about the down ballot too. One thing I've you know, noticed in my neighborhood. I don't know if I'm curious what you guys are seeing, but like I've, I've noticed that it's it's interesting. There actually seems to be more enthusiasm for down ballot stuff this year. Um, then mm-hmm. maybe because the the top of the the tickets is not are not are people that people just don't aren't that enthused about and don't really like all that much, um, you know it, it, it's interesting. Like my neighborhood, I have yet to see. I mean, maybe if you go to the far flung parts of it, but I have really yet to see a, a sign for either of the two major party presidential candidates. I've got one Johnson Weld uh, neighbor uh, a street over um, who's got a sign out for them. But other than that, I man, what I'm seeing is like a bunch of stuff for like county commissioner and state representative. That's so right? Minnesota. Um, that's that kind of thing, right? And it's it's kind of neat. I mean, like it's like <laughs> there's nothing like who cares about these people running for president, right? What we care about is like this guy who's running for county commissioner has been through blasting the incumbent about the fact that she got a road transferred over um, from the county to the, you know, to, to Blaine and they, they didn't transfer enough money. And so now we're in the hole and like, that, that's what people are like passionate about apparently in my neighborhood. So then plus the dude drives like this cool, um, this cool like sort of old car that he personally sort of rebuilt himself. And it's, um, <laughs> yeah, he's really excited about that. He came and talked to me about that. Yeah. So, um, oh, wow. so kind of you know that's that's what's going on in my neighborhood. So you know the down ballot. I mean, in some places, actually, people get pretty excited about it. I guess yeah. well, we have um, the mid range ballot in Minnesota is not particularly interesting this year. Neither <laughs> no. of our senators are up for re-election. Um, governor not is not up for re-election. No. Uh, we're we're sort of it's after president we move down to the and the state House. senate's not up either. We're, yeah, or, you know, sorry, state senate is up. Sorry, yes. my bad. My bad. The, um, but the not none of the U.S. senators, right? As you right. said, yeah. so. After we get past the president, we're kind of dropping down to the yeah. House, and then we're dropping down to the local level. And and a lot of the House seats in the cities really aren't very interesting. It's, the interesting ones are kind of on the outside. Yeah, because like you said, because of this sort of yeah. of, of even local redistricting, right. Um, right. a lot of the seats in the city are, are fairly safe seats. Yeah, most of them are either – most ones in the cities are safe Democratic seats or ex- with the exception of the 6th, my district, which is very safe Republican seats. Right. So there's no – there's basically nothing to see in any of the house races, in, except when you go to the outlying regions, right? Right. So, um, are there any races around the country that are down ballot races that you're particularly interested in, or ones that you think might be bellwethers for how the rest rest of their election might turn out? Anyone you're paying a particular attention to? Hmm. Not so much on the bellwether. I, I can't think of anybody who I, <laughs> anywhere where I look and say that's going to tell me what the country's thinking. I just. I don't know. I'm not sure the country is thinking in such a unified fashion that I, I would feel comfortable <laughs> saying that. I am keeping a very close eye on the Minnesota 8th District, um, which is the Iron Range, so up by mm-hmm. um, North Shore, Duluth, um, in part because I have several students and former students working on that campaign. For This um, is the Rick Nolan Stuart Mills. Yeah, so I have several um, people working for the Republican side of that, not, not on the Democratic Mills. side, who are working for Stuart Mills. Um, and so if you're I listening get, to another part of the country, wait, yeah. hold on, we're about to dive yeah. into Minnesota politics. Yeah, so, um, so I, you know, I'm keeping a close eye on that because they, this is a rematch of 2014 when Nolan won a very close race against Mills, um, and so Mills is trying again. And so I have a former student who's one of the higher-up people in the campaign. And then, For the Mills um, campaign. In yeah. the Mills campaign. Yeah, they're all in the Mills campaign. No, I don't know anybody in the Nolan. And then I have two students doing an internship right now that I'm supervising and um, some other students volunteer, or former students volunteering. So so I'm kind of keeping an eye on that one. But that's mostly because I'm just you know, sort of human interest and it's and close I'm not sure if this is held, but at least at one point this was the – Highest spending race for yeah. the House in the country. Last I checked, it was, um, and it's a statistical dead heat. Um, they came out with a poll with Mills up by four, but within the margin of error. So, so basically, yeah, no one's the incumbent, but Mills is yeah. a very well-funded um, scion of a of a retail family. Yeah. Uh, 
Mills um, Fleet Farm for you Minnesota listeners. Right? Um, <laughs> as a as, as a Republican, and um, yeah, they're going at it um, hammered and tongs. Yeah, and it's a, it's an interesting district because it's, it's one that's gone very Democratic for a long time, but it is trending more conservative. Conservative, mm-hmm. I think, over time, which could help him. It's also even though like there's been a lot of talk about how the Republican you know party nominee um, at the presidential level is you know hurting down ballot races. Um, the Iron Range is one place where he might actually help. Um, mm. he, he probably does have pretty good support up there. I mean, he's going to lose. Yeah. He's almost certainly going to lose Minnesota, but he, oh, yeah. he might well win the Iron Range and yes. might well win it by quite a bit, um, which means so he could actually socially have conservative, good But uh, unions have formerly yeah. had more influence there, but that is declining. And um, a lot of blue-collar whites, right? Yes. I mean, w- which has is, is been the, sort of the core of the Trump supporting supportive base, right? Yep. So, um, so that, that is a place where he might do really well. So one of the races that I'm watching um, is is basically from the state that I just moved from. Oh, there you go. <laughs> totally uh, understandable. This is, yeah, this is, and this is yeah. I'm I'm not quite as into uh, the Minnesota politics yet. I'm, I'm, oh. I will be I will be voting here, so I need to All update right. myself here a little bit. But um, that's not exactly what I'm most familiar with. But there's actually a very interesting race that's had a number of points of drama um, in Indiana. So the Indiana Senate yeah, yeah. race has been um, has been quite interesting. So early on, um, and, and it was particularly interesting for me. I was living in Bloomington, Indiana, which is in mm-hmm. the ninth district there. And that district has been contested over the last couple of years by uh, a couple of guys. One is Baron Hill, who mm-hmm. was a Democrat who held the who held that seat for, for several years, but then um, voted for uh, the Affordable Care Act, which we just talked right. about in 2010. And because that district uh, is fairly conservative, he then lost that seat to Todd Young. Mm-hmm. And Todd Young then held the seat um, and currently holds, the seat, uh, her, holds right. that House seat until um, this year when he and Baron Hill both decided to run for the Senate. Right. And both of them won their Senate, uh, won, won the Senate primaries um, for their parties, for the Democrats right. and the Republicans. However, there were a couple of points of drama along the way here. So one of the points is that um, Todd Young, uh, it suddenly came out that it looked like he did not have enough signatures to appear on <laughs> yeah, the ballot. Was, which is sort good. of a perfunctory thing that all candidates have to go through. They have to get signatures to appear on the ballot. But and in Indiana, you have to get them like in all the different congressional districts. And it was like he was a few short in one of them, I think. Right. right? So, so there's a very yeah. liberal district up in the up around yeah. Chicago, up in the north, <laughs> Gary. Uh, north northwest uh, of Indiana. And he, did, he was basically two or three signatures shy yeah. um, once yeah. they looked at it. But of course... Because the elect uh, the election commission is bipartisan, and they have to get a majority right. to get rid of one of the to, to actually make a ruling and rule that a candidate can't appear on the ballot, um, they were hamstrung. The two Republicans voted uh, to keep Young. The two Democrats voted to to not allow him to run, right. and so that meant that he uh, was allowed to continue to run. Um, so when we look at this, so 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 that was the first thing. The other thing here is that Baron <laughs> Hill, uh, having won the primary. Um, actually stepped aside. So he basically said yep. that he didn't feel like he was the mm. best candidate to run um, for the Democrats in that state. And Evan Bayh, who had been uh, the Indiana senator uh, until six years ago when he retired, um, came back and said that he was going to actually run um, for the for the Senate on the Democratic ticket. And, of course, he mm-hmm. brought with him quite a bit of campaign cash. He had a lot of money. Ten million dollars. Um, yeah, saved sure. over um, to, to, to run his campaign. <laughs> and so Democrats well, can thought... I, can I interrupt here for a second? Yeah. Because I think this is a useful point. Yeah. Why did Evan Bayh have ten million dollars of saved campaign money? <laughs> so when, yeah. when you when you have Good incumbents, question. one of the things that incumbents do once they're in Congress or in the Senate is they start building up what what is often referred to as a war chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they will start building up their war chest of of contributions, and basically they will spend you know three, four, sometimes you know five hour days of their days you know when they're working um, just. Camp, just trying yeah. to get cash, and they yeah. basically save that money. And one of the re- there are a number of reasons they do that, but one of the main reasons is they're trying to ward off 
uh, challengers. Right. Um, because basically, if you look at, you know, if you're somebody who's thinking about, oh, you know, I'd like to run for Senate and maybe I have a chance, mm-hmm. but then you look and you say, oh my goodness. My opponent you know, has $15 million. Right. My opponent is, it starts out, right? You know, I have zero dollars because I haven't even started mm-hmm. to run and my opponent has this just, you know, massive amounts of money. Um, I could never win. And so you decide not to run. Right. And that's one of the main ways that incumbents hold on is they scare mm-hmm. off quality challengers by mm-hmm. saying, look, you're never going to be able to beat me because I can run ads against you night and day um, the whole time. Right. Um, and so and and so that's why Evan Bay has all this money. He he basically yeah. he saved up all this money. He he never had to spend it in a challenge because he right. went ahead and retired before he had to face um, a major primary and challenger. And he can just hold on to that in escrow. Yeah, it just okay. sits there. It's it's just ready for him in his in his campaign. Yeah. Okay. And so so and so essentially, so he's sitting on all this money. So the um the. The Democrats thought that, you know, especially given the uh, presidential race, that they right. might be able to use the coattails that we just talked about mm-hmm. um, to, to go ahead and get uh, fl- to flip Indiana. And Indiana is a little bit weird. Like there are mm-hmm. um, enough liberals and there's also, you know, kind of this tendency in Indiana to to want to split the ticket a little bit. Right. Um, right. And so you, and, and so they thought they had a real chance until <laughs> it, it became quite clear that that Evan Bayh has not been particularly faithful in living um, in Indiana. So mm. um, some records were released from his last couple of years um, when he was serving in Indiana it looks like he didn't yeah. he basically spent zero nights in his home um, in Indiana yeah and so that started to make people start uh, very seriously question whether uh, Evan Bayh was uh, was was a really a Hoosier was really somebody right. who right. who cared for the for, for the interests of comes from, of comes from a long political family in, in Indiana yeah. right? oh absolutely yeah, yeah, his father was three-term senator as well yeah Absolutely, yeah. Long, long history, which is which is another which is a reason why the Democrats thought maybe he would be the one, right? Um, and but, he still might be. I mean, it's know. still. I think he he still got a lead, but you're right. It looked like when he got in, it was supposed to be like this slam dunk for the Democrats, and it's right now. It's a it's a dogfight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um the other thing I would add just as a, by way of background to that whole point about him not um, his sort of questionable residence right is that this is uh, something that Indians have voted on before and they were not happy about right um, which in 2012 the incumbent Republican senator Dick Luger um, was running for re-election I also lived back in Indiana back in the day and so uh, you know so he, he was running for re-election um, and he lost the primary in part because people felt like he was out of touch they, for one thing you know, he was slammed from the right because he was you know too cooperative with Obama but one of the other big things that really hurt him is it came out that he didn't even have a residence. I mean, by at least has maintained a residence, although it's just like it's this townhome that, as Mitchell points out, he doesn't stay in. Apparently, he just like, has <laughs> right. it, which I guess, you know, when you're w- relatively wealthy and working for a, as a lobbyist, you can do that. It? Is he a house flipper? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he doesn't flip it. He just sort of sits there and nobody does anything with it, apparently, because he doesn't sleep. And even when he comes back to Indiana, he stays somewhere right. else because I mean, who wants to stay in this dinky one-room place I've got, right? Anyway, um, so he at least has a residence of record. Luger was like using someone else's address as his Indiana um, residence, and he, he and his wife only lived in Washington because I mean, you know, like he was eighty and he didn't really want to move around. But you know that really hurt him because people said, you know what, this guy is a guy of Washington; he's not a guy of Indiana. He lost um, he lost the primary, um, and then the Democrats actually gained that seat because the Republicans yeah. nominated a candidate who was not very palatable to the the broader electorate. electorate. And then Joe Donnelly, who was actually my my um, representative at the time and a Notre Dame alum as well, so mm, go Irish, go. Um, won the Senate seat in twenty twelve, and it's now the um, Senator for Indiana. So, so Indiana's, you know, this is an issue that they get irked with their people when they don't, <laughs> they don't maintain that, that connection back home. And so we'll see if Bi can survive or not. It'll be interesting. Yeah. But $10 million, I mean, you know, that, that that's doesn't hurt. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of attack ads. <laughs> that's intimidating. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit, a little bit away. From, well, I want to, one of the biggest consequences 
that uh, have been trotted out by both sides of this election is because these two candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, are so unpopular. Yep. I've heard more than any election in my lifetime this following phrase. It's all about the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. It's all about the Supreme Court. <laughs> Whoever wins is going to appoint, is going to appoint 14, apparently, justices right. to the Supreme right. Court. <laughs> court and, packing. Court packing. Right. And I think Andy Crouch of Christianity Today had a nice <laughs> response to this, at least, uh, at least to Christian voters, to say that if you're voting for the president based upon who you think they're going to put on the court— that's idolatry. That's idolatry towards the court. That's right. sort of yep. that, that's idolizing the court yep. in a way that we should be really skeptical of. We should be voting on candidates based on their mm-hmm. relative merits or lack thereof, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. not on what we think they might do in relation to another branch of the government. Right. That said, though, the Supreme Court is incredibly important, sure. and I wanted to give you some numbers. Uh, not 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 hard numbers, not not math numbers, just uh, real simple numbers. Are you going to tell us we, how many justices are going to go off now? Well, I'm going to I'm going to ask you how many you think are going to go off. <laughs> okay. Because we have eight right now. Antonin yeah. Scalia passed away last year. Uh, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to succeed him, mm-hmm. and the um, the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, has absolutely refused, and I think will continue to absolutely refuse to consider Merrick Garland. I think he will be. Um, uh, he will. I, I don't think he'll receive a hearing from the Senate. Now, there's an interesting point here. Unless, of course, the Democrats get a majority that could change. but Possibly. So, yeah, yeah. So one possibility here, as I think you're saying, is if the Democrats take control of the Senate before they assume office um, in January, perhaps the Senate Republicans, seeing that there's likely to have a more liberal justice than Merrick Garland, might try to get him under the court quickly. Yeah, um, or even when the Democrats take over in January. I mean, if, if they get a majority on the the, oh, I in the see. Senate, and, which and Obama leaves office on January twentieth. It's yeah. possible because yeah. the, the Senate will come into session on January third, right? But but they might well wait for Hillary to appoint somebody. That's my guess. Yeah. yeah. So we have um, the court is older by far, and also whiter by far, and also more Jewish and Catholic by far than the American yeah. population <laughs> in general. Um, <laughs> but so here's here's what we've got: the youngest justice on the court is Lena Kagan. She's fifty-seven, I think. Yeah, These numbers might be slightly off here. I'm kind of trying to count for birthdays. Um, but then we have two justices at 62, John Roberts, and uh, the chief justice, and Sonia Sotomayor. But then we have three uh, – we and a couple justices in their, in their latter 60s, um, Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas. But more importantly, even than Alito and Thomas, we have three justices that are north of 78, Stephen Breyer, uh, um, Anthony Kennedy, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Kennedy's 80 and Ginsburg is 83. Right. This is well above uh, the age of most working adults in the United States. Most people mm-hmm. never sought retirement mm-hmm. at this point. These people do not have strenuous jobs. They're not doing no. spot welding on an oil rig. Right. They were, but, it's like six months out of the year, as she said. <laughs> right. But this is, this is still a, t- a mentally taxing job mm-hmm. and a hard job. Do we, how, many, how many potential justices do you think our next president will appoint in their first term? Yeah, it's it's really a hard call. I mean, because it, it just feels so it's so hard to predict when a justice actually steps down. I mean, because from a pragmatic standpoint, you might have thought that Ginsburg or Breyer should have stepped down during Obama's term, um, especially like because the, they're liberal justices. Because they're liberal justices, president. and we'd want somebody like him to replace them, and they didn't. So, I mean, do they step down in a Hillary term? Maybe. I mean, I, I would. My guess is that they're going to be reluctant to both step down too close together because just I mean, you know, they're they're the two senior liberal judges. I mean, especially if Ginsburg steps down, Breyer might like the chance to be the sort of senior liberal judge and get to decide who writes opinions. 
he might want to hang him out for a few years. So if I had to guess, I'd say it'll be two and maybe three in the next term. But Which is a lot. Um, yeah. Most I mean, well, there's two. Mm-hmm. Two is like – so counting the one that's out there right now, right? I'm assuming mm-hmm. that that, Gar- that Chris is correct and that Garland does not get confirmed, which means Obama, even though he had three vacancies in his eight years, is only going to actually get to appoint two of them, right? And um, two, that's my assumption. And, and one, and one per term seems about average. I haven't run the numbers on this. Obama's yeah. going to get two, although yeah. he has the opportunity to have three. Yeah. Uh, George W. Bush had two. two. Clinton had um, two. Clinton had two. Um, First Bush had two in one term. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Good point. I mean, the thing is, like, actually, though, often they cluster, it seems like, in recent years. So Bush had two in his one term. Um, mm-hmm. Clinton had two, both of which happened in the first, like, year and a half of his presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, Bush had two that both came within... A couple of months, basically at the same time, because they had one, O'Connor stepped down and Rehnquist died uh, at the same time. So he basically appointed two in a few months, and those were the only ones he ever got. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of a weird pattern. Reagan got, what, th- f- he had four. He had four in, mm-hmm. in eight years. Wow. Okay. Um, so that, that's our high watermark so far. Yeah. 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 Nixon had four in his. I don't time. think it's unreasonable to expect right. that if Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, she could have. Easily have three easily in in her first term counting the Scalia seat absolutely yeah if yeah. If, if, if President yeah, Obama does not surprising. get to appoint Scalia's replacement if we mm-hmm. still have eight justices going into into Clinton's right. term then I think um, I think she'll get that one for sure mm-hmm. I think she'll uh, and and by the way we do have Senate Republicans right now who are John McCain for example who said that he won't consider any uh, democratically nominated presidents yeah. or any nominated justices for the court. I'm pretty sure that he will back off of that once well, the, once the election is over. I think this is this yeah. is um, red meat for um, mm-hmm. conservative members of the I mean, conservative people. He needs to be get, to get reelected in Arizona. And let's be honest, like if the Democrats win the majority, right? The only if the Republicans hold to that line, then what the Democrats will do is they'll extend the nuclear option to the Supreme Court, and they'll say they're being utterly unreasonable. And the nuclear option, uh, if you can you, you, yeah, can you explain that, that please, because we're not actually using nuclear yeah. weapons in this. Yeah, it's not Senate. nuclear <laughs> weapons. Actually, <laughs> it's this idea. That normally, the Senate requires um, any sort of Supreme Court nominees to survive a filibuster. So basically, you have to get a, a super majority of sixty votes um, to you know sort of move it past a filibuster and move the, the vote to confirmation. Um, and so you know they, they've abolished that rule for lower court judges because um, the Democrats got frustrated with Republicans holding it up. The Republicans threatened to do this previously and the Democrats acted like this is the worst thing they'd ever heard of. And, you know, so then <laughs> shocked, a compromise, was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a compromise was reached um, between some of the senior Republicans and Democrats who wanted to see sort of bipartisanship continue. Uh, most of those people are dead or have lost. Although McCain <laughs> was one of them, but there are, most of the others are gone. Um, and so now, you know, we're in a situation where they, they've already established that lower court nominees can be basically, you know, rammed through with just 51 votes. Um, my expectation is that the Republicans continue to refuse to cooperate. The Democrats, if they get a majority, would absolutely do that. Uh, and then and I, we, think enough, and then I think enough Republicans are they're going to see the, are strategic the enough game. that they yeah. will see that and they will back down. I, I think. I mean, they should because you don't. Otherwise, you're going to sort of you know you're going to lose any ability to oppose when you're in the minority, essentially, and and that would be a bad thing. Okay, so here's a here's a little really inside baseball's thing. So so let's say the vast majority of Republicans, but let's make me a couple assumptions here. Let's say Democrats take control of the Senate. Right. Let's say Republicans, most Republicans want to allow Clint- hearings on Supreme Court nominees. Clinton appoints um, a liberal justice. Could we imagine a Ted Cruz type senator? Um Maybe Ted Cruz, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Uh, on his own, filibustering and forcing the Democrats to use the nuclear option, as you've called it, which is what is, which we, we tend to call it, um, so that when when Republicans retake control of the Senate, then they can use the nuclear option as well. Could be, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that would be an option if he wants to go there, if he wants to sort of destroy the option of the minority opposing, right? But, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's, the, the thing is, Republicans could use the nuclear option anyway when they get in if they really, really want to, right? So, yeah, good point. So I, I don't really see why you would do that now and sort of force that issue, but maybe. For your own personal electoral gain, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. I don't know. But how does that help him in the short run? Because then, you, if, you, if you're if your end result is you get a Democrat, a more liberal person nominated, um, because they they decide to do the nuclear option and go without the Republicans. Well, I mean, if 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 Ted Cruz plays the campaign the way he played it this last time, he's already not well liked within his party. Right. Um, his you know his voting base might be the base that, that Trump had this this party and setting mm-hmm. up and being able to rail against a liberal yeah. core and a liberal president might be his surest way of, of doing well in the primaries. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's possible with Ted Cruz, especially I wouldn't rule out that strategy. I don't think it, I don't think it's a particularly good strategy on his part, but Ted Cruz often does things I don't think are particularly wise. So okay. I don't know. Um, Mitch, what do you think? Do we, uh, could Clinton get as many as three nominees in her first term? Uh, sure. I mean, it looks that way. I mean, there's, you know, once you, once you start talking about people who are well, well over yeah. uh, 70 years old, I mean, there's, you know, it's not, not, you know, I'm not trying to be morbid or anything, but you know, sure. you just, you just don't know how long, mm-hmm. um, you know, people are going to, are going to live past that. And so it's certainly plausible mm-hmm. that, uh, that you see them either retiring or, um, or, 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 or passing away. Yeah. And so, so, so that's so that's definitely possible. I think one of the things that uh, is when when we look at the court, though, and one of the reasons that uh, when we're talking about it in this election cycle, I think one of the things that this shows us, um, in, in in some ways, is is um, we want to talk about like harbingers that are, are, are mm-hmm. showing real problems. Um, is actually uh, the real uh, a really sort of dangerous trend that we're seeing here with the uh, high highly. Uh, politi- uh, politicalization of the court yep. itself yep. and the court process. And so when we look at the court, one of the things that uh, that's very important about the court is that it is, 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 the, is that it is insulated from the political process itself. Right. One of the reasons that we have lifetime appointments is because we don't want the justices to be beholden to, um, you know, basically the party party lines at the time right. and political incentives. And what we've seen from both candidates um, at, during this election cycle yep. is, is basically pushing against that and trying to undermine that. You know, mm-hmm. you have promises essentially that if I'm, uh, if I'm elected, I will appoint justices who will do X, Y, Z. And once right. you do that, once you have said that, essentially what you're saying is we're trying to use political forces to determine what the outcomes of the right. court are. Right. And that's not what the court is supposed to be. The no. court is supposed right. to be yeah. an independent body that actually simply rules based on law. I know mm-hmm. in the past we've talked about this idea of the rule of law where we say it's not what right. individuals want. It's not even what democracy wants. Right. It's what the law says. Yeah, and right. if you are just and if the court is there simply to interpret and follow the law, then that may you know that's going to upset right. both parties at different times. You know because they're going to uh, you know, violate to follow that legal rule. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so and so that if that's the idea behind the court, then you want people who are you know basically experts in the law who are just going right. to follow it. Right. And this is why we have the whole vision of justice blindfolded. Right. right. Where you you aren't paying attention to who's the people doing it. You aren't paying attention to this is all. Right. This is a Republican issue. All this is a Democrat issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just paying attention to what does the law say. Right. And that's and that's what we and that's what you want to to see when you look at justices, but increasingly that's not what people want from the court. Mm-hmm. And right. that is, you know, that's actually become very, 
um, unpopular to actually have this mm-hmm. ideal of the rule of law we want. And I think that's dangerous. I think mm-hmm. once you once mm-hmm. you basically set that precedent, then you've basically removed one of the right. major checks on political forces in, in the United States. You basically set loose political forces to decide all questions instead of uh, allowing the Constitution and uh, and other right. and other major the laws law. the, and the rule of law itself to actually decide um, these questions. So that's so yeah. that's my biggest concern. I think mm-hmm. as we look at this, mm-hmm. I mean, just the fact that we're um, you know that this has become a major political issue and that that's what we're thinking about is right. is, is really a problem. Yeah. And I know I've talked a lot here. No, that's fine. So if you guys want to jump in here, but one of the one of the other things that I think this brings out, and this will sort of. Um, maybe you know one, one of the things that that actually Justice Scalia himself actually warned about this process. You know, Justice mm-hmm. Scalia himself. Uh, you know, despite the fact, you know, this is one of the things I find very amusing about Trump is he says, "I will appoint justices in the model of Scalia," <laughs> and yet Justice Scalia was one of the most famous justices for angering um, conservatives who liked the who liked the quote unquote law and order type conservatism. Mm-hmm. Because he consistently ruled against police officers. He consistently mm-hmm. ruled that, mm-hmm. look, you have to uphold Miranda rights. You have to follow the exclusionary rule. You have to do all of these sorts of things that make it much more difficult right. um, for law enforcement but protect the civil liberties of citizens. Right. And that right. was very much one of the things that he was known for. He was, way, he was a very traditional conservative. Uh, yes, right. absolutely. Right. Um and so and and so in that way, you know, one of the things that's very amusing when we when we hear Trump saying he's going to, you know, basically put people in uh, that that follow Scalia is he's actually basically saying I'm putting, uh, uh, you know, well, he's obviously he obviously doesn't understand what that means is what I'm right. getting at. Right. Um, but one of the things that's very important I think that Scalia modeled in that way. Now there are you know you can find a few exceptions like Bush versus Gore and things right. like that. But by and large, Scalia's whole model of how to be a justice and what that should look like was to yeah. say you follow what the law says mm-hmm. you don't care uh if right. this is something that's going to make republicans happy or something that's going to make democrats happy right. you just say what does the law say what does the constitution say and you do your best to follow that mm-hmm. um you know now you can disagree with his method of interpretation and things like that right. um and that's all well and good you know and scalia and the other justices, you know, uh, Justice Breyer as well, have actually said they prefer to have multiple interpretations of the Constitution sitting on the court. Um, but nonetheless, one of the things that Scalia was warning about, you know, before his death was this whole process of politicalization. And I think mm-hmm. uh, you know, what's really been tragic in many ways is that his death has actually foregrounded the politicalization right. of the court True. and has made right. that even more prominent, which is right. the exact opposite of what Scalia, uh, Scalia's entire career was right. essentially based on. Right. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think, I think, I mean, and the thing is, like, this has been partly a result of the political sort of actors, the way they handle the court. It's also partly what the court has chosen to do over the last few years, right? I mean, where they, where they have sometimes made decisions that seem to be sort of about politics and not about straight up the, the law, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so even like, I mean, you think back to a couple of recent famous rulings, right? I mean, one was the sort of the same-sex marriage ruling last year, right? Which seemed to be driven much more by um, Anthony Kennedy deciding that this was really what he thought should happen as opposed to some sort of determination based on law, right? And so he's like, you know, it was not really um, any – there wasn't – didn't seem to be any really solid basis in any legal precedent other than Kennedy said – this should happen. It's overdue. Therefore, we're going to make it happen, right? And it, it wasn't a very good legal ruling. Um, the same thing, with, to some extent, with Roberts' ruling on um, on Obamacare, right? Which both the right and left found somewhat incoherent, quite frankly, right? I mean, they, that it's like on the one hand, like the, you know, the Democrats saying this should be allowed under the Commerce Clause, right? Um, which was probably the stronger argument for it in some ways, right? Um, and the Republicans saying no, this is beyond the power of the federal government, right? And Roberts decides to allow it under tax, um, you know, sort of the, the taxation power of government, even though this law had very clearly been sold as this is not a tax, right? I mean, this right. was said repeatedly in the debates. 
Um, and so, you know, you can see his technical argument, but again, if you're just looking at the law straight up, right, this did not seem like a, a very good legal understanding of what's going on here. I mean, either you should say, yes, it's allowable because commerce clause or no, it's not because it goes beyond the powers of the federal government. Sure. Both of those would have been a much more straightforward sort of reading of that particular law and of the constitution. Right. So it, it seems like the court is itself, I think made itself vulnerable um, to these kinds of manipulations, or maybe that's the result of the kind of people that have been appointed. I don't know. I think, well, I want to say two things um, and I'm going to go, I'm going to pull us back here a little bit from the weeds of, 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 of the ACA and, and of the Bush Gore decisions mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. But um, it is a difficult process for presidents to pick Supreme Court justices <laughs> because they don't yeah. have term limits mm-hmm. because they have election right. appointment. Right. Um, Eisenhower famously said, I made two mistakes during my presidency and they're both sitting on the Supreme Court. Right. <laughs> um, this is a, this is, it, is, it makes sense to me why this would become increasingly politicized mm-hmm. because, um, because it's, the court seem, uh, to many legislators and to presidents seems beyond beyond their influence and it seems mm-hmm. and it, it seems in some ways arbitrary or frustrating and we have had uh, uh, justices appointed who have drifted from the ideological makeup of the presidents who appointed them for sure um, and so as a consequence I think presidents try very hard to look for markers which will mm-hmm. guide uh, uh, their justices long after they've left office. I think that's the reason why, for example, we have um, we have eight justices. We had nine with when Scalia was present. Mm-hmm. But all nine of those justices were either uh, persons of the Catholic faith or persons of the Jewish faith. Right. Um, there are n- no Protestant Christians on the on the court, right. at least as of right. as of uh, the last uh, the last two courts. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's for very clear reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. That the, the um, whether those justices were conservative or liberal. Um, their faith gave certain indicators of how they would more reliably vote mm-hmm. than perhaps how Protestants might reliably vote mm-hmm. or drift and change over time. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm all to say I'm, I'm not suggesting we need sort of uh, um, proper representation of, of faith on the court. Right. I'm not sure that's necessary. But uh, presidents are looking very, very hard for litmus tests and markers to tell how uh, justices mm-hmm. will represent them after they've left office. Yeah, which, as you know, to reiterate a point we made, is not necessarily best for sort of the even-handed interpretation of the law. And I would, I would highlight one other thing about the court that's unfortunate, or two other things maybe, um, in, in addition to sort of this unrepresentativeness of their, their particular sort of uh, religious makeup, which does not look very much like America, right? But the other things I would highlight is, one, I mean, like it's very elitist, right? So everybody on that court is a graduate of Harvard or Yale Law. Right. So we're talking about two Northeastern law schools, two very good law schools. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, um, you know, two law schools out of the however many law schools we have in this country. And it's a lot. Right. Um, so that's that's one issue. And the other issue I'd highlight is the you fact think that somebody from Stanford gets appointed to the court that give them like a wedgie or something. So, yeah, possibly. possibly. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Stanford would be the, one of the other likely suspects because they're like, you know, second ranking law school now, I think, in front of Harvard. But um, Yale's still number one last I checked. But but, you know, the other the other thing that's unfortunate, I think, about the court is that there's no one on the court and has not been since Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, who has any elected office experience. In other words, there's no one who's ever had to themselves make legislation and go through that process, right? They are all people who have been, spent their entire career in law, teaching law, and being on courts, right? But they have never done that. And I think through most of our history, we've had people on the court who had spent time in elected office, some of them in quite high elected office, right? Um, and who had more of an understanding of what it looked like to um, work in the other branches of government and therefore more of an understanding of legislation in that sense. And I think it would be really great if the next president would appoint someone who had 
who had that kind of background. And there, and the thing is, I mean, there are really qualified people out there to do that. I mean, on both sides of the aisle, right? So it'd be nice if they they would move back in that direction. But we'll see what happens. That's that has not been the trend of late. We get to that point. Um, are you guys ready for one of Moore's half baked ideas? <laughs> this is even. Sure. This is, we're, we're close to wrapping up here, so yeah. this is this is my silly half baked idea for the day. Um, what if every outgoing president um, uh, received a, an appointment to the Supreme Court? Well, we've got a constitutional amendment where any any former president <laughs> automatically uh, joined the court uh, for the rest of their life. Oh, the president so, themselves. Oh. Yeah, so George H. W. Bush, Bill Clinton, uh, soon uh, George W. Bush, soon to be things. Barack Obama, could could imme- they could decline if they wanted, but could immediately join the court uh, for the rest of their life if they wanted to. At the at the conclusion, that, that would give someone with enormous <laughs> electoral experience uh, on on the court. Wow, that would that would be a, a, a come back to a court packing plan here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it would it would it would vary the number of people on the court. Yeah. Sure, certainly because you wouldn't always have the same number of living presidents. So what happens? So at the end of your term, what you're saying is there would be an incentive to like resign, and let then let the, so that you and your vice president could both sit on the court and therefore pack it with <laughs> oh good grief. Party. Okay, all right, Bram, so don't like punch a hole in this already. All right, like, gotta, fine, fine. We're not doing the that. Speaker of the House in there. And <laughs> There, there are some ways to manipulate this that could work very nicely. Yeah, all of a sudden uh, we have 25 people on the Supreme Court. Yeah, okay, this is, this is a terrible idea. All right, we're, not a new room. we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. Right. I, mean, I mean, the other problem with, with something like that, though, and I, 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 agree, I agree with uh, Andy's point absolutely, that it would be very useful to have more diversity on the court. And, in fact, this is something the justices themselves have talked about a couple of mm-hmm. times. I've basically mm-hmm. said you know, that they, um, they, they recognize that they're insulated from the yeah. American population and that they are very unrepresentative of the American population. Yeah. yeah. Um, but one of the one of the potential problems with that is that, that <laughs> just that one. Would, well, yeah. One. In, addition, in addition to the institutional <laughs> problem here that Andy pointed out, um, would be that I think this would also you know this this, this would basically accelerate the politicalization of the. Court. Oh yeah. Oh um, sure. I mean, once again, you know, you would basically have a bunch of people who are trying to protect their legacies, trying to protect, um, you know, our forward, mm-hmm. uh, you know, certain mm-hmm. agendas, things like that, which of course does happen on the court even now, but at least at some level. Um, the justices are supposed to be concerned with law, um, as opposed to <laughs> right. um, as opposed to pure politics. And I just just to sort of re- reference back to this election, I think that's one of the reasons why um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's comments about Trump um, were were so mm-hmm. um, problematic early right. on is because Absolutely. it right. basically was a moment where the court, uh, you know, where where a leader on the court, in fact, mm-hmm. was basically making a political politicized statement. And you know, if if the court is supposed to take this role of being about law, then that shouldn't occur. I mean, they right. should not be concerned with what the political outcomes are. They're simply there to interpret the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the, um, you know, it's basically just another sign of, of, right. of, of this as, as it happens. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 No, and I mean, another unfortunate moment too in recent times in terms of thinking about the political politicalization talked this morning. Um, it was, you know, when Obama very directly attacked the court in a state of the union, right, because of the Citizens United, right? And I mm-hmm. understand why the president disagreed with that decision. I think that in many ways it was a very problematic decision. But but that, that kind of attack on the court, you know, is just unusual, right, and unprecedented. And and so it's, it's really, I mean, we've just seen a number of those things in recent years that have contributed both from inside and outside the court, I think, toward its politicalization. Politicization, I cannot say that this morning. (laughs) It's just one of those days when I can't say that word. Anyway. Well, at any rate, we uh, we probably should wrap anyway, since since I can't sure. convince you guys to you know pave the way for Chief Justice Trump. Um, <laughs> I uh, oh. I think oh. I think I have to. I think we should probably wrap today. We have we all have meetings to run off to and classes to teach. So yep. 
As always, you can contact us. Uh, we do have we have if you receive if you've emailed us at electionshocktherapy at gmail dot com. Uh, we're saving a few of those emails and we're preparing to do a uh, a mailbag show here in a, in a little bit. And um, if you're wondering what happens to us um, at the after the election, uh, we are not like bears. We don't crawl back into our caves and sleep <laughs> until 2020. Uh, we will probably be doing something with this podcast and this channel um, moving forward after the election too. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and thank you for listening. On behalf of my colleagues, I'm Chris Moore here with Election Shock Therapy at Bethel University. Go Royals! Go Royals!